Father, we are so thankful for this time that you've given us in your abundant grace to express to you the glory that you deserve. We only regret that our feeble voices and our often distracted minds and our often, Lord, wayward hearts can only offer to you a sliver of what you deserve. We nevertheless thank you that as we are being sanctified on this journey of godliness, according to the declaration of forensic justification, that our souls are hid in Christ, that we are justified, that His righteousness, Jesus Christ's own law-keeping, is the ground of our righteousness. Upon this, Lord Jesus, the foundation of our faith is based, and we thank you that we are being sanctified along the way, that we have more today to offer to you, those who are in Christ, Lord, by way of mental attention, Father, and by way of testimony of your faithfulness, by way of encouragement in the faith, by way of understanding of your scriptures than we did years before or even days before. This itself is a measure, is a testament, and an evidence of your Spirit's work in the heart, the life, the mind, the soul, and the profession of the believer. We thank you, Lord, for every one of us who have experienced it in some measure. We pray, Lord, only that you would magnify and intensify this process, and would you use the means of grace here in the gathered assembly to accomplish just that, that sins might be convicted of, Lord, through the proclamation of your word, repented of, and turned from. Lord, that greater truth and understanding would flood into our hearts and minds that would give us ground and confidence in a day where the world and pagan ideals challenge the foundations of our faith. Lord, that you would strengthen and encourage us, send down the roots of our faith and understanding deep within the streams of living water, and may the branches, Lord, of our faithfulness and obedience and lived faith, Lord, produce fruit unto the kingdom of God and its growth and the magnification of Christ our Lord and His name, His fame, and His renown. Lord, I pray that you would cause your church to deepen its roots and Again, Lord, to multiply its fruit, even in this day when it seems from the external appearances dark and challenging. Lord, we know that these are the times when your grace can shine all the brighter. Encourage us this day as we approach your scriptures, and may we do so with knees of our understanding and our affections bow before its glorious proclaimed truth. We pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again to purchase for himself a kingdom, and a people who will be covenanted to Him forevermore. It's in His holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. This morning, what a gift and privilege it is to turn to the Holy Scriptures, to celebrate the glories of our great God, and to give our attention to the revelation of the same as we open His Holy Word. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 105 and let us consider this psalm in our Psalm of Month series in 27 verses. That is, the first greater half of Psalm 105 will be the focus of our attention this morning as we bow our hearts before the proclamation of God's Word. In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of the Scriptures. Psalm 105 comes to us this first half in this message under the title, History Testifies. That is to say, the record of events in history. Recently, we've gone over a biblical philosophy of history as time measured by the progress of redemption. The record of time and its progress measured by the work of God in saving man through the revelation of His glory and the accomplishment of His will and redemption has been unfolding through the course of the record of Scripture 
to the point where Psalm 105 was written, many think by David, to accumulate quite the chronicling of events that testify to his glory. So the author of Psalm 105 points us to these reasons, these reasons, in fact, to glorify the Lord because history itself and the record of events testify to his worthiness. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to call the church, to call us specifically, to worshipful obedience motivated by covenant memorial. To, motiv- or to call the church to worshipful obedience motivated by covenant memorial or covenant remembrance. Remembering the terms of covenant should serve to motivate the church to worship and obey her Lord. That is, in part, one of the themes of Psalm 105. So let us stand out of reverence as you're able for the reading of God's holy word today and consider in your hearing the infallible and errant word of the Lord in Psalm 105, verses 1 through 27. Hear now the scriptures proclaimed in your ears. O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He uttered. O offspring of Abraham, His servant, children of Jacob, His chosen ones, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number of little count and as sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, He allowed no one to oppress him, verse 14. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, The rulers of the people set him free, and he made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt, verse 23. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen, They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let me remind you of the theme of Psalm 104. There are similarities and a continuity between several psalms, Psalm 103, 4, 5, and 6. Some think go together as a set. One of the reasons why is because the glory of the Lord is being revealed upon or through a continuum of history. Psalm 104 chose as its theme creation, as the occasion for the worship of the Lord. Psalm 104 opens thus, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed in splendor and majesty. 
covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Goes on to say, he lays his beams upon the chambers of the waters, even uses clouds as his chariot. Thus the author cites the beauties of creation as the occasion for the glory that the Lord so deserves. Creation is the focus of the attention, the symbiotic relationship, the mutually beneficial order of things, even in birds and trees and beasts of the field and water that irrigates all of the plants that are necessary for the growth of the herbivores and so forth and the interaction of ecosystems. All of this, these created elements serve to testify to God's glory. But creation serves as a stage. It is indeed a platform where the chief of all God's creation, man, made in his image, is to play out the drama of redemption and to interact in God's will so as to demonstrate his personal character, his glories, and his plan to redeem a people unto the praise of his great name. Thus, chapter the first chapter of creation closes, if you will, in Psalm 104, and then opens with the second chapter of redemption in Psalm 105. Psalm 105 picks up where Psalm 104 left off, chronicling the revelatory faithfulness of the Lord according to His covenant unfolding in the Genesis account and beyond. The occasion for worship in Psalm 105 expands beyond creation to include covenant. If creation was the theme of Psalm 104, covenant would be the theme of Psalm 105. The author, many presume David, references the legacy of God's unfolding purposes in redemption which are amplified by the history of his covenant relationship to his elect people, from Abraham, if you will, to Joshua. The record of history, that scope, is referenced in Psalm 105. The historical scope of the psalm is particular in its citations, even calling out some of these individuals by name and referencing individual events in their life and ministry. Yet all the while, the psalm is universal in its application. God's people in every era are called to recount the legacy, their own legacy, traced back to the patriarchs as occasion, as occasion to inspire worship, faith, and obedience. Our history, indeed, the history of the patriarchs themselves, the forerunners of our faith, should inspire in us worship, faith, and obedience. David himself applied these themes in recovering the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Chronicles 16 in our first cross-reference this morning will be in that text. So why don't you turn there, we'll reference it in a moment, First Chronicles 16. As, we, uh, as David himself applies these themes, recovering the Ark of the Covenant, and as that record is given to us in First Chronicles 16, we also are charged by way of application with applying these themes yet today as we discern our times in light of the eternal covenant purposes of a sovereign God. As the word of the Lord uh, tested, as the word of the Lord tested Joseph in verse 19 of our text, in Psalm 105, 19, we have this, until what he said, namely God, came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. That is, God's word was a test for the faith of Joseph. Would he cling to the promises or would he be discouraged by prison? We can relate to this in part. As the Word of God tested Joseph, so the Word of God tests our resolve today. Are we to be discouraged by the probability calculations given the situations that we find ourselves in, in our day and age and culture? Or will we look to the record of fulfillment in the timeline of redemption that precedes us and realize 
that the distance between declaration and fulfillment or promise and the fullness of time is always bridged supernaturally. And to the degree that there are yet promises on the horizon for believers yet today, if we look to the circumstances of our world and become discouraged, Psalm 105 would tell us you're meditating on, you're considering the wrong thing. Look instead on the record of God's faithfulness against all odds through the course of redemptive history and be encouraged. Encouraged to worship, encouraged in your faith, and encouraged to obey even in times such as ours. The fullness of time is always bridged, or the promise and the fullness of time is always bridged supernaturally against the odds by the covenant sovereign. This is because God is jealous for His glory. He is the Lord our God. He is the Lord, the God of the covenant. He was the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and Aaron. And He is the same God, our God, so let us worship Him accordingly. With that introduction, let me give you a heading for three major points in our text today. Here's the heading. Psalm 105 issues a call to worship. It issues a call to worship, number one, resounding to all covenant members. This is a call that goes out in manifold ways, and it goes out to all members of the covenant, all God's people, all children of Abraham, all beneficiaries of the covenant relationship of God to man. Praise Him on account of what He has done in the history of His redemption, in the record of our own uh, past as we chart it through the Scriptures. Number two, Psalm 105 issues a call to worship. Who? The covenant author. All the rest of the points refer to who we are to worship. Psalm 105 issues a call to worship the covenant author. And point number three, bringing us through verse 27, Psalm 105 issues a call to worship the covenant sovereign. First of all, a call to worship from Psalm 105 is issued to us. It's resounding to all covenant members. Verses 1 through 6. Now, as we read these verses again in the opening portion of this psalm, Notice how many commands to praise the Lord are given. Now, there's going to be, by my count, 11 of them here, and we'll add a 12th in the final verse of Psalm 105. So mark them as we read. First of all, oh, give thanks to the Lord. So giving thanks is number one command to praise the Lord. How else ought we to praise the Lord? Number two, call upon His name. Give thanks, call upon His name. Number three, Still in the first verse, make known His deeds among the peoples. Again, give thanks, call upon His name, make known His deeds. Sing to Him, number four. Sing praises to Him, number five. Tell of His wondrous works, number six. Glory in His holy name, number seven. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice, number eight. Seek the Lord and His strength, number nine. Seek His presence continually, number 10, and then turn to the very end of Psalm 105, verse 45, says that they might keep His statutes and observe, observe His laws, and the final injunction to praise, praise the Lord. So herein are 12 references in the text of Psalm 105 that command us to direct our praises heavenward, to lift up our adulation, our praise, our worship, our songs, our thanksgiving, our expressions of glory are expressions of reverence to the Lord. This is a call to worship resounding to all covenant members to praise Him in a 12-fold manner, if you will. It is a 12-fold call to worship. Now, why are there so many 
expressions of praise multiplied in the context of Psalm 105. Well, surely to communicate several things. First of all, the Lord is worthy of a 12-fold, if you will, magnification of His great name. But also, you'll know from your studies in Scripture that 12 is a significant number in the course of the context here and in the course of the record of all of Scripture. 12 is a number of fullness. 12 is another way of expressing numerologically that God is worthy of the fullness of our praise, that every expression of our heart, every expression of our mind and soul ought to be dedicated and directed to Him, hence the 12-fold call to worship. I uh, lied. I told you that our first cross-reference will be in First uh, Chronicles 16, but I actually want to turn to Revelation 12 before we get there this morning. In Revelation 12, the fullness of that number, I'm sorry, Revelation 7, the fullness of the number 12 comes into view as we see what is signaled and prefigured and modeled for us by way of prophecy and anticipation, and passages like Psalm 105 find their fulfillment in future glory and future redemption as the timeline of God's events through history unfolds. And Revelation 7-4 notice these references to 12 and 12 times 12. Uh, John says, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Note that 144,000 is 12 times 12, and then we see a reference to 12,000, a set of 12,000 in the following tribal references as well. So sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, verse 5. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. And then notice how this catalog continues. 12,000 from 12 tribes, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin are added to their number. What could this mean? Verse 8 expounds. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, and from peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. And what do they say? Verse 10 continues, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Verse 12, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So this multiplication of the number 12, may I suggest parallels with the 12-fold call that we see in Psalm 105. The fullness of worship is deserving of the one who calls to all covenant members, 12,000 from every tribe, and in this numerologically or this symbolically represents a great multitude beyond what anyone could number. In other words, the number 12 and 12 times 12 indicates the fullness of the elect, a multitude too big for us to imagine and the purposes of God maximizing His praise from a number that sounds in the harmony of voices joined together like mighty rushing waters. Thus, uh, Revelation chapter 7 pictures a fulfillment of Psalm 105. The work of God through history is accomplishing a number of things. A record of His manifest glory 
for more and more reference points of worship as we look to what He has done to accomplish His will. And then as He gathers for Himself an elect people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that those voices, the 12,000 times 12 and so on and so forth, might continue to exponentially multiply to answer the 12-fold call of worship to bring to Him in due course as history continues to march forward according to His will to bring forth the glory <clears throat> that He so deserves. This is how Psalm 105 opens. It's a glorious opening indeed. It opens with a resounding call to all covenant members to worship Him in twelvefold manner. Secondly, we have <clears throat> in verse 5 a principal occasion for worship, if you will. Why do we worship the Lord? Well, reasons have been multiplied through the first four verses, and then we have this verse, verse 5. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles, and the judgments He uttered. There are three reasons we worship, three focuses for the sanctified attention of the people of God. His wondrous works <clears throat> that He has done, two, His miracles, and three, His judgments. On principle, or in theory or in abstract, these are why we worship the Lord, because He has done mighty works, He has accomplished, worked mighty miracles, <clears throat> and has decreed mighty judgments. And then in specific, the rest of Psalm 105 will outline these. It will give us examples of His works in history, examples of His miracles worked through His servants, and examples of His judgments decreed in time. <clears throat> Categories of God's will manifest in history. When we think of God's works, we could think beyond some particular moments, even to the care and concern for creation generally. That is to say, God's providence is included in His works. The young people in their Sunday school lessons have been studying out of Colossians and memorizing a passage there from Colossians chapter 1 which indicates that Jesus Christ is responsible for the creation of the whole world, and by the word of His power, He holds all things together. That is to say, as Psalm 104 also reminds us, as we look out our window at the beauties of creation, we see a principal cause for worship. The fact that in the works of God's providence, He maintains and sustains all things. Even the carefully calculated interworkings of ecosystems that we see celebrated <clears throat> in Psalm 104. Even the provision that the trees of the field and the crops that grow forth from the fields give us <clears throat> for our daily bread. These are the works of the Lord. But also, of course, we see the works of the Lord in a more particular way in redemption. And these are laid out in covenantal sequence beginning in verses uh, 8 and following, which we'll get to in due course. The second category of principal occasion for worship is miracles. <clears throat> what God has done superseding His ordinary means of organizing creation and the world to accomplish His ends. And of course, this is, uh, these miracles that God accomplishes mark, in many cases, significant eras of redemptive history. Scholars have noted this. At creation, there was a, such a miraculous set of events. In fact, everything at the beginning was a miracle as the world came into being by the spoken word of God. 
and then you have eras that follow that, which also are attended by miracles, the flood is a moment of particular redemptive historical significance. Thus, in that moment, you have specific instructions and a specific call. You have divine revelation to build a boat, and you have eight people preserved as through the waters of judgment by this instrument of salvation. A miraculous era indeed. Then you go forward and there's long passages, there's long times in the Bible and the record of his people that are skipped over as far as a lot of specificities are concerned. And we can presume that life was more or less ordinary. And things, the timeline was governed by the providence of God, but you didn't have the everyday miracles. Think of those moments in history where some four centuries, the people of God waited for deliverance in Pharaoh's Egypt, for instance. Nevertheless, the Lord would intervene. And at the time of the redemptive work accomplished through his servant Moses and Aaron, there would be miracles demonstrated. And again, these become principal occasions for worship. Apologize for my voice, but I'll continue to power through. And then there are judgments of the Lord. That is the revelation of his word, which indicates a standard that is the legitimate measuring stick whereby all nations and all individuals are Decree, or are measured to have, uh, stand up or to fall short of His glory. <clears throat> and the judgments of God through the course of history also provide an occasion for worship. As we see these principled occasions marked in our text today, we find in them reasons to worship God right now. God in His providence is ordering and holding together our world right now. Even though we are perhaps surrounded by an era of miracles, we are no less surrounded by evidence of God's works in history. After all, He saved you. If you are a believer in this room and He saved, and he saved myself, did He not? All believers can testify to the work of God, yes, indeed, miraculously changing their own hearts. And we see His judgments prove true in our day where the nations are judged according to the standard of His Holy Scripture. <clears throat> and thirdly, or and as we see this, we recognize that He is alive and well and accomplishing His purposes even at our day. Thus, this call to worship, uh, focusing on the works, miracles, and judgments of God, applies at any time, but in the context of our passage today, there is a, for instance, in the historical background. <clears throat> and this is the third point, uh, point number one, respond, res, uh, resounding to all covenant members, there's a call to worship. This is a pr- and we've covered the principled occasion, and now let's go to the historical occasion. And for this, I'll turn you to 1 Chronicles 16. <clears throat> 1 Chronicles 16. Now at this time, this was our worship text this morning, the first First uh, Chronicles 16, 8 through 22, actually is a citation of our text today. Uh, Psalm 105, <clears throat> verses 1 through 15, are quoted and sung virtually verbatim in David's song of thanks upon the return to prominence of the Ark of the Covenant to the presence of the people and the place where it should have been and the attention of the nation of Israel at this time. Notice in 1 Chronicles 15, some of the background here historically, beginning in verse 25. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands uh, went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant 
of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were the Levites who were carrying the Ark, and the singers and uh, Chenaniah, and the leaders of the music of the singers, and David wore a linen ephod. Verse 28, so all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and made loud music with harps and lyres. In verse 4, it goes on to say, He appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. So this is the historical occasion that Psalm 105 has served to uh, a soundtrack for or as a theme of worship for. You can ask this question. What were the invocations? What were the songs of thanksgiving? What were the praises that were offered at this significant moment? Well, it was Psalm 105 and Psalm 96. First Chronicles 16, 8 continues with Psalm 105, 1 through 15 cited. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, and so forth. This moment of the ark returning in its location to the prominence of the uh, uh, returning from its location of obscurity to a place of prominence among the people, the location and the condition of the ark, what this event signifies, we can ask this question, what should captivate the attention of the people given this moment in their history? Well, the people's attention was turned in the use of Psalm 105 to remember the covenant history and faithfulness of the Lord. We have the symbol of His covenant faithfulness in the ark, and we have the praises of His covenant faithfulness in Psalm 105 uh, together unified in this event. And thus, the historical occasion serves to emphasize that when the people's attention returns to the glory of God among them, they remember His mighty deeds and what He has done. Uh, Years and years ago, I preached a sermon series that basically followed the condition and location of the Ark of the Covenant. And my point in that series was you can use that as a measuring stick for the spiritual health of the people of God at that time. If the Ark was forgotten, the people invariably had forgotten the Lord. If the Ark was commandeered by their enemies, the people had fallen away from faith and a declaration that their nation and their future stood upon the Lord. If the ark returned to a place of prominence, it was attended by their attention being drawn to the glories of the Lord. This is because the ark of the covenant was a touchstone of the presence of God among them. And so the two went hand in hand. What is the touchstone of the presence of God among us? Is it not the indwelling spirit of God? Do do not the scriptures say that we ourselves are a temple The temple was indwelt by the ark, signifying and attended by the presence of a holy God. Thus, that location signified a reconciliation between a holy God and a sinful people. And now, this picture, this geographic location, and this symbolic worship has been transcended by the experience of every believer. So that it begins to make sense as we put two and two together, that those who have been inhabited by the Spirit of God, whose very presence has indwelt them, those who have had the privilege of becoming a tabernacle for His glory, would sing songs like Psalm 105 regularly 
recognizing that the historical occasion of our own salvation, just like the return of the Ark of the Covenant to the prominence of the people, is worthy of a song that testifies to the glory and faithfulness of our Lord preserving a people all through history. Psalm 105 issues this call to worship, which resounds to all covenant members. Major point number two, Psalm 105 issues a call to worship the covenant author. We talked about reasons for worship, now we turn to who we worship. When we worship, we worship the author of the covenant. Verses 7 through 11 emphasize this, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Our covenant author, the one who has established and enacted the covenant whereby we have secured eternal life, that is the relationship and the terms of relationship between ourselves and the Lord being established through his mediator, Jesus Christ, and upon the sacrifice that he offered. Our covenant author, is universal in his authority, and his word is eternal. Verse 7 says that he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. I never tire of emphasizing how the Old Testament proclaims the universal authority of Yahweh. Pagan philosophers, pagan scholars assume that Yahweh was a concept of God unique to a small in number and obscure people namely national ethnic Israel. This is not true. The testimony of the faith of the uh, Jew of old who placed his faith in the word of God delivered to them, acknowledged, professed, proclaimed, and believed that God, Yahweh, was not just their Lord, but indeed the judge of all nations. When Yahweh revealed himself in very particular, personal, and precise ways to his servants like Abraham, he did so in a universal context. He said, I am revealing myself to you, Abraham, for a purpose, in part to be a light to all nations. All nations, now as then, stand in at the mercy of the Lord God Almighty. His judgments are universal, and they must answer to his law. They may have suppress the truth in unrighteousness culturally and in, their, uh, in their, um, the terms of their law and what binds them together as a society so thoroughly that they have utterly forgotten that or virtually forgotten that. Nevertheless, the fact remains that all who stand in opposition to the word and law of God stand worthy of his judgment and will incur his judgment on the final day and in history as the Lord issues his decree. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. And furthermore, his covenant remembrance and his word are forever realities. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, which is a poetic way of saying that when God establishes a thing, it shall never be moved. The testimony of the immovable word of God it's immortal, unfailing, unfailing character, it's inerrant indestructibility, will continue on through our age. Despite the fact that we ourselves live in a pagan culture who denies these very things. We live in a society who considers the Word of God up for review, which is the height of heretical blasphemy. 
The Word of God is not up for review, for alteration, or for change, or for reinterpretation according to the progressive values of a modern, secular, secular, you know, degraded culture and age. Not so. His judgments are in all the earth, His covenant is forever, and His word that He has commanded, it endures for a thousand generations unto ours and beyond. The author of this covenant is universal in His authority, and His word is eternal. For the unbeliever, yes, he is in a relationship with the Lord as well, only he is under his judgment. And the goal of the gospel is to demonstrate to the unbeliever that you may deny, despise, and reject the Lord and God of all the earth. Nevertheless, he is your creator and your sovereign, and you will answer to him. You are in relationship to the Lord, but you are under his wrath and curse unless and until you repent of your sin and place faith in his only way of redemption. The author, our covenant author, <clears throat> reveals himself in such a way so that we do not confuse the particularity of his covenant grace with the fact that he is Lord of all. We cannot, if we take the word of God on its face, misconstrue the evidence of God's calling of the individual and his personal relationship with the patriarchs as testimony to a parochial God that is confined to a particular region. Not at all. The author of the covenant is the judge of all the earth, and his word is eternal. Having established this principle, our covenant author is revealed furthermore in verses 9 and 10 as, yes, personal, and yes, generational. The covenant that he has made with Abraham, he says in verse 9, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Two beautiful truths are expounded in this section as we consider our covenant author. He is transcendent, which means he is above and over all. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the sovereign over all that is. Nevertheless, he is not an abstract, distant, deistic type principle. No, he is personal and interactive in history, creation, and two individuals. He made a covenant. That is to say, the one who is the Lord our God and the judge over all the earth, he made a covenant with an individual, our forefather named Abraham. The one who is, whose judgments extend over all the nations and who has issued, decreed his covenant forever and commanded the same for a thousand generations, he has sworn a promise to Isaac. He has confirmed his word to Jacob. And he has called you, saint, if you are a believer in this room, from the miry clay personally and set his affections upon you and redeemed you from your lost state. And now your name, as we sing often, is graven on his hands. And he has given you redemptively a new name as we have studied recently because you are his. And if you are redeemed, you are now marked in the ledger of the new heavens and new earth. And you are a citizen and saint who has a destiny and inclusion, and you have a certified uh, citizenship, you have a certified birth certificate, if you will, that will secure you entrance into the glorious new heavens and new earth. And that is a personal reality. Our God is personal, He's generational, even as He is universal in His authority, and His word is eternal. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The rest of the psalm details how the covenant is revealed and manifests over time in the context of these individuals and their families, their lineage, and even to us, their spiritual lineage. We can draw those parallels from the rest of Scripture.
And this includes an inheritance, an inheritance that is received by faith. Verse 11, what does the Lord say to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He says, to you I will give this land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. The land of Canaan is a picture of the promises of God. There was a place that was assured and given by God's decree, and these promises go all the way back even to Genesis 9, 26. After the sin of Ham and then the pronouncement of judgment prophetically by Noah, we find that Canaan himself is cursed and Shem will be the significant son. And through him, the distant coastlands will eventually come under his tents or be incorporated into the covenant. In here, we have the seeds of the first promise of Canaan to be given to those of Shem's lineage, the people of God, the covenant people, if you will. Later in Genesis 15, 16, God reveals to Abraham that the soul's that the sole of his feet, the places where, it's, where he treads, and even his children's children's children, and so, far, so on many hundreds of years later, in Deuteronomy eleven twenty four, they will eventually own, though he remains a sojourner, these, this particular place, Canaan. This is to demonstrate and to illustrate that God has decreed in his promises a place where man can dwell with him in his favor, and it is his portion and inheritance forever. This concept is even more particularly illustrated in Mount Zion, as we often expound from this pulpit, or the hill of the Lord, or temple worship. The place of God's dwelling with man is the place where a sufficient sacrifice is provided, where the covenant terms are fulfilled, and where the order of things is such that man can dwell in his presence without being condemned to hell, but welcomed as a friend welcomed as one who is purchased by a blood sacrifice to enjoy perfect communion with God Almighty. Who is the one who is genius and powerful, who has the genius and power to accomplish a covenant such as this? It is the covenant author proclaimed and glorified in Psalm 105. This brings up our third and final point this morning. Psalm 105 issues a call to worship resounding to all covenant members, a call to worship the covenant author, and thirdly, a call to worship the covenant sovereign. Verses 12 through 17 begin to expound through history and particularly individuals the timeline of God's covenant relationship with his people. And he does so in three categories and will add a fourth by way of further fulfillment at the end of this message. First category, Abraham. Second category, Joseph. And third, Moses and Aaron. Verses 12 through 15 detail uh, the covenant with Abraham, or they at least choose a snapshot of it to emphasize that God is the sovereign over his relationship with his people, 12 through 15. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, of course, this follows on the heels of the promise of the covenant land. So God gave this promise when they were few in number of little account and sojourners in it. Verse 14, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Notice evidence of the covenant sovereign in the record of Abraham. We worship the Lord because he is glorified in that his majesty is magnified juxtaposed or contrasted against the insignificance 
even the, in some cases, the wavering faith of Abraham. In Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, there is a record of two interactions with powers that be, of uh, intimidating earthly authorities. In Genesis 12, we've referenced that in prior messages. Uh, it was an interaction with Pharaoh. And you guys remember that uh, Abraham was scared that Pharaoh would steal his wife, so he passed her off as his sister. And then the Lord was not, and then as the record uh, goes to show, the Lord was not happy with this arrangement. And he, so to speak, rebuked kings on Abraham's behalf. Pharaoh indeed gives up his claim to the bride in spite of this bit of deception, returns her and a bunch of gifts to Abram at that time, and thus fulfilling or thus emphasizing verse 14, he allowed no one to oppress him. The Lord did not allow Pharaoh to steal the covenant bride. Instead, he rebuked kings on his account. Now, you might wonder why Genesis 20 is included in the early record of the covenant. It makes the same case, virtually the same, this time with a different king. In Genesis 20, the king of Gerar, Abimelech, uh, seeks to do the same, acquire for himself the beautiful Sarah in spite of her marriage to Abraham, Abraham again having passed her off as his sister. Nevertheless, what happens in this case? God rebukes the king Abimelech, king of Gerar. He does not allow him to oppress Abraham. He rebukes kings on his account. So you see, Abraham, if it was up to him, there is no way the covenant would have continued to the next generation. Abraham's wife would have been stolen on at least two occasions. And the child of promise would not have been born because God's decree was specific. It was not through the union of Pharaoh and Sarah that a child of promise would come. It was not through the union of Abraham and Hagar that the child of promise would come. It was not through the union of Abimelech and Sarah that the child of promise would come. No, it was through the union of Abraham and Sarah that the child of promise would come. So in spite of Abraham's weakness, his fear, his lack of faith at times, his frailty, his poor decision-making, his compromising of his own covenant relationships, even within his own family, nevertheless, God rebuked kings on his account and on our account to accomplish his holy will. Who was the sovereign of the Abrahamic covenant? Ultimately, we see testified here, in spite of Abraham, God is the sovereign. We can take great courage and reassurance in that in our day, in spite of ourselves and our own frailty, our fickle minds, our failing faith at times, we can look to Psalm 105 to remind us that in spite of ourselves, the Lord will rebuke kings on our account. How many of us have shuddered in fear at the possibility? This week, I was talking to my wife, and we've been kind of considering maybe an addition to our house. We don't really need, need it. But this week it occurred to me, you know, if the record or if the trajectory of our culture continues right now, persecution and restrictions will likely increase in Bible-believing churches. And I could foresee an instance where it's illegal not to marry people who self-identify as any one of 72 genders or want to marry the same gender and so forth. In other words, a church that stands upon the created order and the immovable a position of the scriptures that marriage is to be solemnized between one woman and one man until death do them part will not become popular and may come, become illegal one day. 
So I thought to myself, I wonder if we should consider an addition big enough to have a house church if we are forced into it at some point in the future. Just thoughts that tend to roll through my mind. And I'll be honest with you, as I think about these things and all of the events that seem to roll and to increase, to gain momentum in our culture, like a snowball of intractable apostasy in our land, I can shudder with fear. But notice, this would not be the first time that God has rebuked kings on account of his covenant purposes in history. Do you not think that Abraham was afraid that all of the history of the covenant would be subject to being overthrown because of these intimidating powers that be? Absolutely. That's why he lied about his wife. And today, let us not commit the same mistake. Let us look to Psalm 105, which includes the record of Abraham and realize that, yes, even today, God can rebuke kings, even the Supreme Court of the United States of America, on account of accomplishing his redemptive purposes in our time. It is the Lord who said, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. We can be rest assured that if God has ordained that we suffer for his name, and we submit in some degree under the tyranny of, of an unjust government as we've been studying First Peter 2, we can trust that it indeed has redemptive purposes to show forth and to manifest the suffering that our Lord and Savior endured for us. But if you think that our government is powerful enough to quench the future of God's redemptive purposes through the proclamation of his gospel in our day, you got another thing coming. You will be proved wrong, not just by scripture, but also by history. He will rebuke kings on account of his redemptive purposes in our time. And as we look at scripture and encouraged by this kind of record and testimony, it will give us courage to stand. Even if we are slaughtered as we say these very words, we can tell the king, you have no authority, just like Jesus said, unless it's granted to you by my almighty father. And I can tell you, you may kill me right now, but my death will serve his purposes and it will be according to his sovereignty. He is Lord. He is judge of all the earth. And if you try to shut up his church, just you wait and see. It will probably only magnify the clarity and truth and the power of the gospel as God has seen fit to do and has been pleased to accomplish in any age where people make war with his covenant. We serve a covenant sovereign who has proved himself powerful in the testimony of Abraham. God has manifested himself in history through Abraham. God has manifested himself in history through Joseph on behalf of his people God has manifested himself through Moses on behalf of his people, but these were only type and shadow. These were only types of Christ, if you will. Ultimately, God has manifested himself in history through Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. And shame be upon us if we marginalize or let our faith be shaken, having received this evidence in the course of our day living in a post-incarnation era. More evidence of the covenant sovereign manifest in the testimony of Joseph. This ought to build your faith as well. Notice in verse 16. When he summoned a famine in the land, wait, who summoned a famine on the land? Oh, was it a, a sun cycle or something like that? Or was it environmental degradation due to too much fossil fuel burning at the time? Uh, no, this was a sovereign hand of God who summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread. The Lord will sometimes initiate a season of hardship in order to showcase his glory. And so he did in the days of Joseph. Notice verse 17, the record of his sovereignty continues. He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. 
Was Joseph the victim of oppression of his day and would not rest until, you know, Jewish lives matter had risen up to overthrow the chains, burn down Egypt, and set himself free from the unjust bonds of Pharaoh? Well, that wasn't the key to Joseph's freedom. He lived like 1 Peter 2 said. You serve under the, uh, the influence of the government, honoring, uh, and even in subjugation to the same, honoring the Lord and watch what he will do. Joseph was sent to save his people from famine. And his, as he did so, the initial unjust, wicked act of selling him into slavery was redeemed for powerful, gospel-advancing, and covenant-preserving purposes. Do you see how God even redeems the hardship and the atrocities of history unto his gospel ends if we realize his sovereign purposes through them? God can do the same thing in our day. He can redeem the atrocities and the horrific sins of our own past in order to feature that redemption and reconciliation that a nation, as we've also studied in 1 Peter, is establishing its identity, a people are establishing their identity in and through and ultimately only in Jesus Christ who calls us out and makes us a new nation, a new people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation to be called forth to show forth his praise. This is what happened when Joseph was sold into slavery. God summoned a famine and sent a man ahead of them, Joseph. Verse 18, his feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. Indeed, for years and years, Joseph was condemned to this bondage until the word of the Lord came to pass and the word of the Lord tested Joseph's resolve. Where would Joseph look for encouragement while he was in fetters in this pit, having been falsely condemned by Potiphar's wife? Where would Joseph had looked on that long trek while he was bound in these chains, following behind this camel train or whatever it was, to be sold as a slave in Potiphar's house in Egypt? Well, he needed to look where Psalm 105 would direct his attention, to the faithfulness of God to his lineage, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The king sent and released him, verse 20. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of his possessions. The slave is now a king. The slave is now a prince. To bind his princes at his pleasure, to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. You see how the covenant sovereign, God himself, orchestrated these situations in order to manifest himself in history through Joseph against all odds. Could Joseph take the credit for this scenario? Absolutely not. It was God who summoned the famine. It was God who sent him ahead. It was God who redeemed his slavery. It was God who saved his family from starvation and continued the messianic line. And then thirdly, we see evidence, God manifesting himself in history through the testimony of Moses. The Lord made his people very fruitful, verse 24, and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses his servant. There's that sending language once again. But notice there again in, the, in these passages, evidence of the sovereign hand of God. He made his people very fruitful. So the people of God grew in strength and number in Goshen because God gave them the ability to do so. They became indeed by his sovereign hand stronger than their foes. Yet the Lord sovereignly turned the hearts of the people of Egypt and indeed the government against them and subjected them to hundreds of years of slavery. Could this have any redemptive purpose? You know, in their lack of faith, the people might have cried out no. But in these times where they're subjugated, 
under the heavy hand of Pharaoh. They need only look to the testimony of God's faithfulness which preceded them, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And the testimony that came to Abraham all the way back when he said, when the fullness of the wickedness of the Amorites is that the reference is complete, then I will return you to the land of promise. And so with each day of passing slavery for those four plus centuries, the fullness was increasing until the time when God would decree. And at that time, verse 26, again, just like he sent Joseph, he sent Moses, his servant and Aaron, whom he had chosen, they performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. Next time we're in this passage, we'll expound on miracles in the land of Ham. And we'll remember that Ham, the legacy of Ham, is that of the city builder. The most imposing, powerful, intimidating forces of this world summoned and unified to create an alternative salvation plan for man's future. And all it took was a stuttering prophet from the wilderness, a shepherd with a guy speaking on his behalf to bring an empire to its knees. This is God's design. This is how God manifests himself in history through the testimony of these men, these covenant significant sons, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. As we close this message, we ask ourselves this, if God has manifested himself in history through men like this, and it is through the encouragement and faith, and it is a focus of attention, it is a cause for worship, it ought to move and call the church to worshipful obedience, motivated by covenant memorial as we see history testifying to his sovereignty, to his covenant authorship. If these are enough to move people at the time of the writing of Psalm 105 to glorify the Lord, how much more our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Galatians 4, we read this. You can turn there if you wish. In Galatians 4, following an analogy drawn from Hagar and Ishmael and Sarai, Sarah and Isaac, we have the purposes of God through the covenant line revealed in this way, Galatians 4, 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Notice, just as God sent Joseph, just as God sent Moses and Aaron, now God sends forth His Son, born of a woman under the law to redeem those who are under the law, you and me if you are in Him today, so that we might receive adoption as sons. There are our covenant bonds as fixed as ever eternally in the heavens. And verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The covenant sovereign has chosen to manifest himself in history through a lineage of significant sons, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and Aaron, all the way through anticipating Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Galatians 4, 3 through 6 reveals him as the ultimate significant son. And upon citing this analogy of Abraham's sons, the author, Paul, points us to Christ, the ultimate one, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, the covenant sovereign made flesh to save for himself a people. Now, Paul, author of Galatians, also wrote Romans. At the beginning and the end of that book, he says the purpose of his instruction, his gospel, is for obedience of the faith among the nations. Let us return to the aim of this morning's message, 
which is echoed. Paul's words are echoed all the way back in Psalm 105. Psalm 105, the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, all the Scripture, calls the church to worshipful obedience motivated by covenant memorial. As Psalm 105 closes, it says this, And he gave them the lands of the nations, verse 44, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might. Verse 45 now gives us a reason for the record of God's faithfulness all through history. In other words, that phrase, that they might, may I submit, refers not to just verse 44, but all of God's covenant history. And indeed, we can add to that the covenant history that has continued since the time of the authorship of Psalm 105. In other words, why has God revealed Himself in such mighty and manifold ways all through history? That they might, or you could say that we might, keep His statutes and observe His laws, praise the Lord. That we might keep His statutes, observe His laws, praise the Lord. When we focus our attention on the glories of our covenant-keeping, covenant-initiating, covenant-fulfilling God, it should move us to worship Him. And that worship has content. It is that 12-fold call to give thanks, to call on His name, to make Him known, to sing, to sing His praises, to tell of His works, to glory in Him, to rejoice, to seek the Lord, to seek His presence, to remember His wondrous works, and to praise His holy name. But it is also a call to obedience and faith among the nations. Let us keep His statutes. Let us observe His laws. Let us seek to reorder our lives according to His principles as we recognize that He is truly the Lord of history, even as He is our Savior and Lord. Let us close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank You for the record that we have in Scripture that so strengthens our faith as we behold it. I pray, Lord, that the evidence of the, and fruit of this message, your word proclaimed from Psalm 105, would work its way out in a more consistent testimony of our faith and confidence in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We repent, those of us who have faltered recently in fear and in concern and despair, seeing that the days are dark around us. Lord, and we turn once again to the focus and focus our attention on how you've used exactly eras exactly like this in history to show forth your mighty glory. I pray also if there are any in the hearing of this message who would relate more to Pharaoh and relate more to Abimelech than they would to you, who are children of the city of Ham, who have grown up in under your ju judgment and wrath, having not known the covenant relationship with their Creator, Savior, and Lord, I pray that you would call them out of darkness into your marvelous light, that the preaching of the Word of God would cause them to see their sin in light of a holy God and turn to the only place of hope, salvation, and safety, to Jesus Christ, and trust that His blood shed for them will wash away, propitiate their sins, expiate their sin, and earn for them righteousness that they might stand before the Father with all that covenant throng that we see in Revelation, 12,000. 12, times 12, and so on, indicating the fullness of the people of God, praising you forever without end. Thank you, Lord, for this glorious hope we have in our future, and thank you for the glorious hope that we have as we see the record of your faithfulness through history. May these encourage us to stand strong in this day and to call to the lost, repent, and believe. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.